This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly. My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. Theo Greyhawk. And welcome to another episode of Earl Grey. I'm your host, Amy Nelson, and Richard and Lee are, I think they might be conspiring against us because they are not here with me. However, I do have a trusted friend, Justin Ozer. Justin, welcome to Earl Grey. Thanks. Great here to great to be here again, uh, talking about one of my favorite season one episodes. Yes, that's right. Season one. There are good episodes in season one. So um, we are going to talk conspiracy, and uh, this episode uh, we have uh, the Enterprise going for a long needed uh, break. To do you remember the name of that place? It's not Risa this time. It's Pacifico, which is yes. a water world. Yes, yeah. Pacifico. <laughs> that's right. And uh, they get, funny enough, a code forty-seven. There we see forty-seven, and uh, they are called away from uh, by Captain Walker to go and a secret meeting place, and to Ditalics. Ditalics B. Yes, Italics B mining uh, planet. And there Picard is told that there is something amok in Starfleet. So they head over to Starfleet and on Earth. And there they find some crazy things happening with some uh, creatures that are trying to take over the Starfleet and Federation. And we will see if they save the day. So, Justin, you uh, brought this to our attention. And I'm wondering, why did you choose conspiracy? Well, I, I chose... Well, so first of all, I've been on Earl Grey before talking about some later TNG. I, we talked about Time's Arrow, which is, goes between seasons five and six. And we talked about uh, Ro Laren, who was on TNG between, you know, five and seven, seasons five and seven. And I think for the most part, people think, you know, TNG gets really good season three and after... And I thought it would be good to show some appreciation for season one. I know you've done that with with uh, talking about the unsung episodes of season one, but this is one of my favorites of season one uh, for a couple of reasons. So it's very dramatic. It's very foreboding. When you first see it, you don't know what's going on. You're really wondering, what is this conspiracy? Why is everyone worried about about what's going on here? And it's pretty much 
all a plot there's no you know separate b plot for anything going on on the ship and it has a very driving kind of tempo which i think is it can be unusual for for tng especially early tng because there's some things that happen they think about it they go forward they have some meetings and whatever but i think it it keeps a really a really fast pace it's a really interesting uh, story as well and it's also one of those rare examples of continuity uh, because this season one episode conspiracy which is toward the end actually builds off of an earlier episode coming of age where you did see Admiral Quinn and Commander Remick who were on the ship being very mysterious about their intentions. They knew there was something wrong with the ship. They were interviewing everybody. In the end, they figured out there wasn't anything wrong, but this follows it up and you find out there's something very wrong. So I like that continuity as well, which you see more later in TNG, but it's very rare to see that in in season one. And I think it just, it holds up as a really uh, great episode that, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that's really dramatic and and you know very interesting to watch and very different from what you're used to especially in season one yeah i'm glad you brought up coming of age i was thinking of talking about it so i'm glad that you brought that up and yeah they are looking and looking and here you see admiral quinn uh you know, really trying to find something because he feels there is something wrong. And of course, in the end, there is nothing wrong, but he leaves Picard with that warning, you know, and, uh, and so when Picard comes back to Starfleet and is like, well, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, you told me to keep my eyes out. And he's like, oh, that was nothing, you know, because by then Admiral Quinn had been compromised. So there definitely is that playback uh, to the previous episode earlier in that season. And I like that as well. Yeah, I, I, I like that, too. And I think it's interesting because Picard actually knows that there's something wrong with Quinn because he's like, oh, there's nothing wrong. And I have all this energy because vitamins. You know, yeah. like, uh, so you know that he's acting acting really strange. Um, so yeah, I, I love I love seeing that follow up and an interest. I, I'm moving ahead a bit, but an interesting thing about this this episode is that they intended to have even more continuity going forward from this episode because the original idea was that these parasites they send a message at the at the end of the episode. And then in the next episode, the neutral zone, uh, you hear about all of these uh, outposts uh, on the Federation and Romulan side being destroyed. And the original idea was that the parasites were in league with the Borg and they would introduce the Borg in early season two. And it would kind of continue as almost this longer story arc. But that got interrupted by the, the writer strike that happened in 88. So they pushed the Borg forward to the middle of, of season two. But it was intended this would be the start of you know a continued major threat to the Federation. So I think it's interesting that they were thinking about that at this point, And maybe it's kind of a shame that 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 didn't happen or carry forward. It is because I was also thinking, I'm like, gosh, this is such a very good uh, storyline that they could arc over and, you know, have so much. And one of the things I was thinking about was like, are these really these scorpion like creatures? Are they really that believable that they would come in and infiltrate, you know, the highest commands of Starfleet? And for me, it just wasn't that believable. But if they were planted uh, by another 
you know, alien or another species, I, to me, that would have been more feasible. And I would have liked to have seen that because that's more credible. These little scorpion things, they're going to really have the capacity. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be, you know, knocking them so hard, but that was my thought. And I thought, man, if they were like, you know, placed in there by the Romulans or yeah, the Borg, like you mentioned, that would be so much better and more believable that to, to have these little scorpions just do it on their own. I don't know. Well, and what's interesting is that there there is, this doesn't happen anywhere on screen, but in, in the novels, there is actually an explanation. I won't spoil anything or give anything away, but in one of the DS9 novels that takes place after uh, after the show, uh, it's called Unity, they do actually bring back these parasitic creatures. There's an explanation for their origin and why they are the way they are. So they found a way in the books to have an explanation, but if there would have been an explanation that this was the Borg's kind of subtle way of, of taking over the, the Federation... That would have been kind of interesting, but you know that would be in contrast to what we see with the Borg later, where they're anything but subtle about their intentions and and what they're they're doing. So, uh, to, it would have changed how you would have seen the Borg as an adversary, and who knows, maybe it wouldn't have worked as well. But I think it's interesting that it's a path they didn't take just because there was a writer strike. It's not like they didn't want to do it or they they wanted to go back on it, but because of the writer strike, they just they didn't have the I think they didn't have the time and the money to stage what they wanted to do so they had to just kind of file that away for later and do something something different and it also makes the next episode the neutral zone seem very strange because they're destroying these outposts and like nothing comes of it you know so yeah yeah and it's interesting because they do use that the same verbiage like um with the borg when they send out the homing beacon you know oh they sent out this homing beacon from earth and where is it going and you know so very yes borg introductory i've never made that connection until now yeah well and and when I first saw this, that was one of the things that that made it really scary because like the very end of it, because, you know, so you see they destroy the threat, but then there's this homing signal that's going out. You don't know where it's going or why. And that's where they leave it, which is also something that's really unusual for TNG to do something like that, to leave something, something open and you don't know where it's going. So the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, what is going on? There must be something crazy that's about to happen. And it's kind of a shame they couldn't go through with it. I know. Finally, they don't tie up all the loose ends and then nothing happens later with it. So, so, um, this episode I felt brought into question, um, well, one of them, I, in my math class, yes, I know. Um, we talk okay. about, <laughs> Un- unlike Richard and Lee, I'm happy to talk about math. Excellent. So in my logic and reasoning uh, unit, we talk about what is a statement and then versus what is a paradox. And um, one, I think when, uh, is it Captain Walker? Captain? Uh, yes. Ca- yeah. Well, Captain Because he's of uh, the... Uh, Walker, yeah. Walker yeah, Keel, Walker's I think it was. Yeah, first name. Captain Keel, I think Keel. it is. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, and so they're on the mining planet, and then he tells Captain Picard, don't trust anyone. I'm like, okay, 
this has to be a paradox because if you believe him and then don't trust anyone, well, then you're trusting him. Well, don't, don't trust anyone. And that means myself. So I just thought that was interesting to go against that. But is it really possible to not trust anyone? I think that maybe it would be possible to do that, but you wouldn't be able to do much in life, right? I mean, if you don't trust anyone, that includes yourself. Like, I don't even trust myself and what I'm doing. So I don't think it's possible. Uh, you know, he makes this, this blanket statement, like don't trust anyone, which actually reminds me of the X-Files, like trust no one. But, um, it's not really possible to do that because uh, to a certain extent, Picard has to trust someone and he has to trust, you know, Captain Keel, who is, uh, we find out in the episode, one of his oldest friends, as good of a friend as, as Jack Crusher. So he has to trust him. Um, and, uh, you know, he has to trust other people as well, because what's interesting after that is you see a scene in the ready room with Picard and Troy. Um, and so Picard's bringing Troy into his confidence before Riker or anyone else knows what's going on, which is really interesting. And he's saying, he's kind of talking with her about what's going on and what he should do. And Troy is arguing that, you know, these captains are disobeying regulations, they're keeping things secret, trying to, to caution him. And he says, uh, that that he has to trust them and that and I think Troy says there's a risk to that right and he says friendship has to dare to to risk which I really like uh, so he has to trust someone and at that point he's trusting the captains he saw on the planet plus Troy and then later he brings other people into his confidence like Riker and, and Data uh, over time but yeah I think it logically you can't do that you can't trust absolutely no one or what could you even do in life, you know? Exactly. And what I found interesting is that here we have Walker telling Picard that, and in his little group that he brings to um, Ditalics B, he's got um, Captain Scott, the female captain. And so Walker's trusting her, and Mm -hmm. yet she's the one who is like the double agent, right? You well, know, she gets we compromised. See her later. Well, she actually, the way I took it was that she's compromised later when she's brought to Starfleet headquarters. So I don't think she's compromised at that point. You don't think so? I um, because when I <laughs> now you're making me question this, and I've seen it like five times. <laughs> so, but okay. So think back. So when um, they go to the academy, and they're like, "Oh, it's a shame about Walker's." What was the name of his vessel? The Horatio. Which Horatio. Interesting yes. note. It's Ambassador class, which we find out the Enterprise C is later. Hmm. So, yeah, when they're talking about the Horatio and they're blowing up and that destruction there and um, but then the admirals are saying, you think we didn't know about that secret meeting? That's when I was like, okay, she was in on it. No, but but he also uh, Keel also says that he feels like most of the people on his ship are also compromised, including his first officer. So I took it to be that that they found found out and that the ship blew up because of someone on his senior staff, not because of, of Captain Scott. Hmm. That's how I took it. I, I, I don't know. It could be wrong, but I took I it that it was someone. Know. I don't know. Yeah, you well, could be that right. could be. Listeners, you let us know. Do you think that she was compromised at the beginning or later? That's interesting. Wow, and I thought I was so sure about that. Now you're having me doubt. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I just thought it, they were trying to show the irony that here Walker is don't trust anyone, but yet he has these two trusted advisors that he brought along. There's actually a, th- a third one, which is Captain Riggs, who's a Bolian. That's actually the first time we see a Bolian on Star Trek is this captain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so those, yeah, Walker, uh, that guy who you said, and, and uh, Captain and Scott. Scott. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think it's interesting, though, that he brings in like three different captains because the more people you bring in, the the more likely it is a secret would would spill out. You know, there's the saying from Benjamin Franklin, three can keep a secret if two of them are dead. <laughs> so <laughs> it's really hard to keep a secret. And the more people that you have uh, let in on the secret, the more likely it'll be compromised. So, you know, whether it's through, you know, Scott or one of the other captains or, or somebody on his ship, you know, I, I kind of question why did he bring in so many? He says it's the best and brightest and maybe they can cover all this ground, but that kind of risks what what he's trying to do. Well, but I mean, think about what can one person do? And so if you actually are trying to stop something or to to take action, like how much can one person do? So to bring in other captains, I guess, would, I mean, especially something as so magnanimous as the Starfleet, you know, the Federation, you've got you've got to trust someone That's because true. you can't well, do it by yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the end, of course, he, he did a good thing by bringing in Picard because it's because of Picard that it ends up stopping. So I, I guess you could say by bringing in more people, maybe there's more of a chance of somebody stopping it, but yeah, it is, it is kind of, um, kind of interesting. And what I find interesting about this episode as well is that, you know, so far in the next generation, um, you know, for the most part, we've seen people who are, are in, in Starfleet as, you know, doing things for the good of, of the Federation. But here there's this this conspiracy where so many officers have been compromised, captains and admirals and commanders and, and all the way through. And I think it's interesting when they were first... Uh, writing up the episode, they originally had it as a military coup at Starfleet Command, but Gene Roddenberry was just violently opposed to that, that that just wouldn't happen in the Federation. They have to be compromised by aliens. So that's when they inserted in the parasites. And actually, I think it works better because you have this mystery about what's, what's going on as opposed to a coup is usually, you know, it's pretty fairly easy to understand someone's trying to grab power, but Roddenberry felt that it would just kind of strike at the core of what he was going for, for the utopian future. And there had to be something outside that was compromising it. Yes. We cannot have any internal conflict. That is correct. Yeah. Well, the vision although, of you know, the great bird, <laughs> but you do have, you do see some internal conflict. If we go back to coming of age where you see Quinn and Remick, you know, there are some people that are really hostile to what's going on. I mean, Riker, you know, blows off Remick in that episode and says, I'll talk to you later when it doesn't interfere with my duties. So there are these like little bits here and there that you get of conflict. And I actually, I kind of like it when we, when we see that, because I think it's more realistic that there's some conflict. I think I do believe in this, you know, utopian future that they have, but you know, if there's no conflict or challenges to it, how can it stay in place unless it's tested from time to time? So I like it when we see this because to me, it makes it more realistic that there would be some of these challenges, but in the end, you know, the utopia would would win out. Yeah. So <clears throat> we do see talking about um, when you're saying that, uh, you know, Picard is talking to Troy and that is his first, you know, go to as ship's counselor. So I think, again, just bringing to importance 
this new added role on uh, Star Trek. Um, but and he he wants to believe Walker and he wants to follow his advice. And, you know, I think and he says that friendship draws on risk and you know, and Troy's like, you are risking your entire career in Starfleet. And so is friendship, I mean, and I love that backstory that he has with Walker and, and Jack Crusher, um, because we do get to see more of that context. And obviously this is a very important, um, friendship that he has with Walker. So it does add validity and we believe Picard when he is going to follow it. Um, but is that what friendship is really about? I think that it is. I mean, I think that, well, friendship, I mean, it can, it can start from, from different places. It can start from, you know, common interest or shared adversity or something like that. But I think for the way I think about it, friendship at, at its core is about, you know, uh, trusting someone that you can, you know, talk with them about, you know, just about anything and they'll, they'll lend an ear or, or be sympathetic. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's not just that, you know, you're in the the same situation, like the same work situation, or or something like that, and you become friendly. It's it's more that that um, I think a, a deep friendship is someone that you can really really trust, and that's what Picard has here. That's what I think, at least. Yeah, I guess it goes to at what level of the friendship, because I I think about this and like in my own life, and like, am I willing to risk? you know, something on my end for a friend. And I guess it depends on that level of friendship. Yeah, it can depend on the length of friendship, too, because I think it's clear that that Picard and Kiel have been friends and known each other for decades. Right. So there's if if a friendship can last decades, you will probably stake a lot on that and trusting what that person says instead of, you know, the person you became friends with last week. Right. Because you've seen them through different experiences and what they do. And I'm sure also because they're Starfleet officers, you know, Picard, even if he's not, you know, serving on the same ship or in the same same area as as Kiel, he could probably see from his record, you know, his integrity and and that he can be he can be trusted. So, yeah, I think I think you're right. The level of it does matter. And in this case, the level is decades of of friendship. And that that counts for a lot for for Picard. I mean, he only mentions Crusher as some Jack Crusher as somebody that's up there on that level. So even though Picard's probably known lots and lots of people in Starfleet and other places over the years, this is one of his, uh, the people that he, he trusts the most, you know, I, I think it's interesting. This is happening in season one, because, you know, when we see Guinan in season two, she's also that kind of person that he, that he trusts just as much. Uh, but at this point, it's just this guy and, and Crusher that we know of that he really trusts. So he does feel, I think he wrestles with it a little bit, but in the end, he's like, if I can't risk something on this type of friendship, then, you know, what can I trust? truly believe in? What can I truly trust? Yeah, I think back like in in my life and obviously in the education world, um, and I, I sort of see um, similarities to what I not have to do, but what I can do um, when, say, like another teacher uh, comes to me with complaints of say, for example, a principal, you know, someone who's above me. And, you know, and we see that Picard's like, well, I haven't 
seen any of these, you know, uh, irrational proposals or, you know, anything that Walker is saying is, is actually going on, you know, change of command and stuff like that. Um, but because he trusts Walker that he does send data to, you know, specifically look for if there's any of these irrational proposals or patterns or strange orders, stuff like that. And, you know, even though Picard doesn't have a personal experience with Starfleet giving strange orders, you know, I think he does go and investigate. And I, I have done that in, in my life as well, where it's like, you know, I haven't seen anything, but this is happening to you or this is happening to another person. And so what are these conclusions that they are making? And do I need to change my conclusions about what's going on? Has, have you ever done that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of a specific instance, but I know there have been times in 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 my life where, um, you know, I've had to to question something or to look at something in a different light, and I have to kind of step back and really assess it. Um, I mean, in this case, Picard is fortunate that he has an android that can go through all of these records so quickly and find the patterns he he needs. But um, yeah, it, it it is, and you know, Picard's doing what what I would do. Like, okay, someone is making this huge accusation of what's going on with really not much evidence because they just feel that some weird things are going on. But let me go and and find a systematic way to find the evidence. So Picard's taking it a very scientific approach. Like, you know, the theory is. Is that there's something really wrong with all these orders. Let me just have data do an experiment and 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 test that out. So I, I like the way that he that he does that because he he doesn't say, well, my my gut instinct is there's something wrong. Let's head out to Starfleet Command and confront them. He has data do this, and when and he tr- definitely trusts Data's conclusion. Like when Data concludes something's wrong, it's really unlikely, and this is what it means. Somebody's trying to take things over. He trusts that, and then he takes the big risk to head over to Starfleet Command. He's actually he he's made the decision that he's going to risk something based on this friendship and what Keel was saying. But until he has that evidence, he's not going to take the huge risk of confronting Starfleet Command on Earth, which is you know way above. <laughs> you know, him or what he's supposed to be doing, you know, coming to, to confront them about things. So he does, he takes a very, I mean, I would almost say he takes a very kind of logical Vulcan kind of approach to it where, where he's not going to take that risk unless he has the evidence that he needs. Yes. Always the diplomat. That's why he's the best captain. That's (laughs) (laughs) well, we could have an argument about that, but he's, he's way up there for me. Yes, he is. (laughs) But yeah. Um, so we, yeah, we do get an illumination into his character in this episode, even though a lot of it's dramatic and, you know, there's fights and all kinds of things happening. I think you're right. We, we get to, to learn a lot about the way Picard thinks about things and how much he really values uh, a longstanding friendship. So I have a question for you. And this does, this is the second to last episode of season one. And we know in season two, um, we do not have Dr. Beverly Crusher. And it just sort of got me thinking, actually, for the first time. Um, Remember when um, Riker comes back and says, wait a minute, that was for the doctor. And then uh, Riker's like, well, Riker got in the way, so it couldn't be helped, you know. And so my question is, like, why did they 
specifically want Dr. Beverly Crusher? And was this a prelude of sort of writing her out that Starfleet wanted her to take over medical? Okay, so I think you're talking about um, when Quinn is on the ship and he's supposed to compromise Crusher, but ends up, they think, compromising Riker instead. Um, yeah, when I've seen, it, including this time, when I've seen the episode before, I haven't thought much about that. I mean, it's it's the parasites really that are making this decision and you know i was thinking that maybe they'd be very interested in compromising uh dr crusher because then they would have an asset who's a medical doctor who could um give some kind of excuse for medical exams and and actually infect them with the parasite that's that was Ah. my thinking for why they'd want to do it and okay that makes sense and at this point I mean, it was late in season one. I know that Gates McFadden did have some um, some issues with how her character was being used. I don't know if they had decided already that she wasn't going to, to be there when they were filming this, but um, I don't know. It's a good question. I just took it to be, hey, you know, having a an experienced doctor, it would be great a great excuse to infect more people and to really take over. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because we know uh, Gates McFadden had contract issues uh, with that. And so I was just, I just was wondering, I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is prelude to why she's gone and they wanted her. I mean, possibly. I mean, you know, maybe a a writer could insert something as a commentary. I, I don't know, but I just took it to be that she'd be a really valuable asset for what they're doing. Yeah, well, that totally makes sense. Excellent. All right. Well, um, this episode being, of course, very heavy and deep, we've been talking a lot, but there are definitely some funner and uh, humorous points in this episode. So uh, what did you find funny or humorous, Justin? <laughs> okay. Well, there are a couple of things that I took note of. Um, the, the scene in the beginning before they find out that I think when some people are talking on the bridge, there's there's a couple of funny moments. Uh, they're talking about going to Pacifica, which is a water planet. And Troy says, have you ever been for a real moonlight swim? And Data says, one can swim in moonlight. And then Troy says, how about you, Mr. Worf? And then Worf shakes his head and he sternly says, swimming is too much like bathing. And he says it in this way, like, I hate bathing. It's, it's just a really fun little thing. And of course, I always laugh when, when Data uh, misunderstands something and thinks that you can swim in moonlight. So... Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was my, that was the very first thing I have. Swimming is too much like bathing. Of course, Worf would say that. And that's hilarious. His one-liners are just so good. His one-liners are the best, and of course, it reminds me of the later episode that where uh, he's forced to to be in a bath with uh, Loxana Troy and Alexander, and he looks like he just absolutely would rather be anywhere else in the universe than that. And that was even a mud bath. Come on, Worf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's so that's a great moment. One of the other things I was actually because I'd forgotten a little bit about this. I was really surprised the way that that the the show practically opens it's at the tail end of laforge telling what seems like a very dirty joke to data i don't know if (laughs) Uh, yes i'm like what was that wow and of course data is giving this this you know explanation about you know complex positioning and zero gravity and all this stuff and i was like wow i don't think we'd seen anything up to that point in in 
in uh, TNG. So I laughed at that. And of course, right after that, when Data's saying, oh, this is funny because and it's hysterical, he, he tries to give his laugh like, ha, 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 ha. I can't even imitate it because it's just so mechanical and, and hilarious. And the way that Brent Spiner just stops laughing and then gets back to work. He's like, oh, got to get back to work. Oh, just I'm really seriously, you can do this fake laugh that's so hilarious and then just bam, right back to work. That is so, so good. That's great. So, I mean, what one of the things that, that they're doing that I think is a really great technique in, in writing is that, you know, if you have a really heavy episode, I think it's it's good to, to lighten it up a little bit with some humor. So they lighten it up with some humor at the beginning, basically to, to just kind of emphasize that you know we're toward the end of season one um, you know we're the the crew is getting to know each other they're like a family I mean Jordy and data feel comfortable enough and friendly enough with each other to tell you know risque jokes to each other right on the bridge on the bridge where anybody can hear it right <laughs> yes and then and then Troy and and data and, and Worf are talking together so you know even though they've been together on this ship for less than a year they can kind of talk with each other and and so it gives you a sense that there's this cohesive family and that has a real impact I think later in the episode when there's there are these things going on and Picard gradually takes more and more people into his confidence Troy and then you know Riker and Data and all the senior officers and everybody else so that you feel like it's basically this this family on the ship of the Enterprise against this conspiracy at Starfleet Command. It's it's really like they're all in it together and they're going to do everything they can to fight this conspiracy. So I think it's it's kind of subtle and it seems like it's just comic relief, but it's really, truly effective in, in getting you to really be behind them and root for them and that they're all going to be in this together. Yeah, another, I don't know if it's funny, but how they write data and when he's... I can't remember. He's sitting at the console somewhere and um, Riker comes up and asks him a question. Maybe you can I've, refresh. I've got it here, actually. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. So so Data is is doing some work on Ditalics B, which is this mysterious right. place where where Picard wants to divert them. And Riker's trying to find out what's what's going on. And uh, and Riker says, why the devil would we be going to this place? Are there any life forms indigenous to the planet? And then Data says, I believe the answer to both questions is no, sir. In a manner of speaking, it is nothing more than a lifeless hunk of rock, a useless ball of mud, a worthless chunk of, and then Riker says, thank you, Data, I get the idea. <laughs> so it's a, one of those funny scenes where Data is just rattling these things off and you feel like he's going to go on forever. I, I love well, that. And yeah, we see that. And I think that really sets up, I don't know how long they had Data talking like this, but I think they did it enough through season one where he's, you know, basically this thesaurus you know, uh-huh. I'll say it one thing and then I'll say another and then I'll say, you know, and or when or what's our ETA? Well, it's three hours, you know, minutes, seconds to the millisecond, basically. OK, that's enough. Yeah, thank data. you, Mr. But like, data. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they do that so well through season one that it just is in your mind throughout the rest of the seasons, even though he doesn't continue that small chitter chatter. We just know to expect it and that that's what's really going going on. That's what I love about that example. I love that too. And there's there's another data one. Every time that I see this, I, I practically fall off my chair laughing because I think I forget that it that it happens. So data's doing all of this research for what's going on with all of the orders and commands for, for Starfleet Command. And as he's screening the the he's looking through all of the records at this high speed 
it's just data in the room with the computer. And he says, startling, quite extraordinary, in fact. And then the computer says, direction unclear, please restate request. And data says, that was not a request, I was simply... And he pauses for a little while and he says, talking to myself. And he looks pleased with himself, like, oh, I'm becoming more human. And and then he gets excited about it. And then he says, a human idiosyncrasy triggered by a fascination with a particular set of facts or sometimes brought about by senility or used as a means of information before reaching a conclusion or as a, and then the computer interrupts and says, thank you, sir, I comprehend. (laughs) And it's hilarious because this is the, literally the only time anywhere in Star Trek you hear a Federation computer refer to itself as I and seem kind of irritated with someone because usually it's people being irritated with the computer. So I just love that, that Brent Spiner as data can be hilarious, even when he's just talking to a computer, you know? Yes. It's it's brilliant. So those are the moments. I think that's like four or five moments that are kind of sprinkled through the episode. And I was noticing it more this time. There are these really funny moments in the midst of all of the these things that could destroy the Federation itself because of a takeover from an outside force. But it, it works. They put, they put it in in a brilliant way so that it doesn't detract from it or seem like they're trying to undermine it with comic relief. But... It just adds that that little extra, you know, bit to the episode that makes it a complete episode and makes it one of my favorites. Yeah, it, it is. It's definitely those were some good moments. So talking about it just came to my mind. Um, so we have Riker coming down to Starfleet. And at what point do you think that Picard knew Riker wasn't compromised? Do you think it was from the beginning? Like, because I was watching it, and so we see Riker, and they're like, well, this was for Dr. Crusher. Well, it couldn't be helped, and blah. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, Riker really is infected. What's going on? Of course, you know, and Picard, did he know? Did he not know? And Riker takes up all those maggots or whatever things and pretends he's going to eat it, and then, bam, takes out his, you know. It's, it's, it's a good it's a good question because, you know, when I first saw the episode, I was kind of questioning myself if if he had been compromised by the parasites. There's a certain way in which it doesn't make sense, though, because, you know, in in sick bay, you know, that she has Crusher. Dr. Crusher has has Quinn on this on this medical bed and Riker's behind him. So you, I can't figure out a way that he would actually get compromised. But of course, Picard doesn't know that. Um, I think the way that Jonathan Frakes acted, it acts it, it seems really convincing and as far as I can tell um, Picard I don't I don't know because it's hard to tell if it's Picard kind of like quietly assessing the situation even though he knows he's outmatched or that he knows that that Riker hasn't been compromised and will be his ally in this I I, I tend to think that he's Picard's unsure about what's going on until Riker actually draws the phaser but it's hard to tell because I think they play it so well you could read it either way I know because I was thinking like in uh, episodes later on in the in the se- series like they Riker and Picard will give a little glance uh-huh. you know like okay this is we're on the same page and you know and that little glance I didn't see that in this and so I was like mm-hmm. this is very interesting And the first, I think that we will, well, one of the first that we will see that these two, this, you know, nonverbal communication between the two and how that develops. I mean, and and even 
earlier in the episode when uh, Riker and Picard are talking to Quinn in, in the corridor and Quinn is talking about how he all has all this energy and vitality and what he thought about before isn't, isn't a big deal. I think Riker and Picard do exchange a glance where they're like, something's not right here and then he pulls them aside. But yeah, the way that they frame that that scene, you don't see them give the glance. You don't. I think it's really uncertain. I mean, people mm-hmm. maybe can let us know if, what they think one way or another, but I, I tend to think that Picard is is like 50-50 on it. Like maybe there's half a chance he's not compromised. Maybe he is. I can't tell because he's acting so well at this, you know, and that's the way I felt the first time too. Yeah. And what led me to question was um, when we see the last shot of the doctor and Admiral Quinn and Riker in Starfleet, and then you see Riker walking down the corridor and it just told the music just totally uh spoke to me and it was like this foreboding something's gonna happen this is you know bad music and and I was like you know what this scene if you mute that you would just think this nothing's going on Mm -hmm. but that music adds the suspense that it's like oh my gosh Riker is now compromised and I think the music totally plays into the viewer's perspective that something bad is going to happen and so then because of that music you're like oh my gosh Picard doesn't know and Riker's compromised and you know so I really appreciated the music at that timing. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, I love the music for this episode because I think even right from the very beginning in the the, the first shots, it, it sets this foreboding kind of darker uh, tone to it. And, you know, I think sometimes people will make fun of some of the early TNG music because it's kind of, I don't know, it, it, it seems that it's maybe not the best music or maybe too electronic, depending on your your point of view, but there are some episodes like this one where it's perfect and I just love it. It just perfectly adds to the, to, to the, um, to the feeling of it. And if, if the music had been done differently, maybe you wouldn't even like the episode as much because it does it, but it just perfect. Like at each turn, it just perfectly uh, emphasizes what you're supposed to be feeling or what's going on. So we definitely need to, to give credit to the music for that episode. Yeah, agreed. And and you can tell that you're right. It is a different feeling because of that. And yeah, definitely. Yay. Shout out to Brandon. <laughs> yeah. So your melodic tracks is rubbing off on me. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit, as I've listened to melodic tracks more, I notice these things more and how the music adds to it, which is great. So yeah. we've got to talk about the ending, right? Oh, do we? <laughs> Must we? I think when when people think about this episode, if they've ever seen it before, one of the first things they think about is the ending. Of course, you know, I won't go into too much gory detail, but it's absolutely got to be one of the goriest things that's ever been seen anywhere in Star Trek. Don't you think? I agree. So um, when I was watching it in preparation for this, um, my brother who really he enjoys TNG, but he hasn't seen a lot of the earlier ones. Uh (laughs) And um, I'd mentioned previously that I got the Blu-ray for Christmas and um, he was still home visiting um, home 
And so I got back to my place and I just started watching go, 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 go. And so by the time he got back, like I was already on, you know, halfway through season two and, you know, and so then he joined me, which, you know, that those are his favorite, the later episodes. And so when we watched Conspiracy, he was like, almost through the whole thing, he's like, I have not seen this. And I'm like, come on, you have to see it. And so then we get to the ending scene and he's like, oh, I have not seen this. You know, I would have remembered this. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, it's, and it, it's, it's something to, that you always uh, remember. Um, I mean, and actually it's gory to the point where when it was first aired on the BBC, they actually edited out the part where, you know, Remick's head basically explodes because that was just too far too much, you know, but, but, um, I think one of the things that's, that's interesting was that I, I was reading that Gene Roddenberry actually insisted that it be this violent, gory ending as a way of kind of huh. thumbing his nose to the studio who he felt were giving too many notes about various things. And, um, but some, Somehow it you know it it got through, but yeah, it's it's very unique in in Star Trek um, to to see something to that extent. I mean, it's clear they they spent some time on this, right? Um, and the the one thing I think that doesn't hold up is the little parasites like crawling up Remick's leg. It, it clearly looks like somebody has it on a stick and they're just kind of like of shimmying it well, up his I, leg or I something like that. I was almost wondering if it was like claymation, just the way it that it was kind moving. Of, it is some kind of stop motion animation where they just have it in a place. And then take and and keep going like that. But you know, one of the other things that I think is 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 amazing is you know toward the end where Remick has swallowed this parasite and his his throat is kind of bulging out. Bulging. Do you yeah. know how they actually did that? No. So Michael Westmore, who is a makeup genius, who did you know yes. was head of the makeup department from eighty seven to two thousand five on so many different Star Trek productions and movies, he was actually behind the the chair that Remick was on, and there was this apparatus that was hooked up to some like false air bladders, and he was blowing air into in and out of them. So that's the dedication. Wow. He was just like sitting there behind there, like blowing air in and out to get that effect. Who knows how many times or for how many takes, but yeah. that part is really disturbing too. And they just kind of went the extra mile to, <laughs> to, to do that. I, I think it's amazing that that's, that's how they did it. Yeah. So is it that these creatures like, and totally correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there a bug that went in? Chekhov's ear in, in, in Wrath of Khan. The original. Okay, yeah. Wrath of Khan. Uh -huh. Yes, yeah, see, I have I, seen I find the it movie. hard to watch that 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 part. I, I find that extremely disturbing when there's something crawling in his ear, but yes, it was Star Trek yeah. 2. <laughs> so, is that you know, paying homage to TOS or just a coincidence? Um, it's it's a good question. Well, and um because yeah. they both, both of those little creatures, like it crawls in your ear and they said it, it goes to, mm -hmm. it cuts off something in the brain. And the same thing with this creature that it attaches itself to the spinal cord. That's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it. So it, it could See, be. See, look at me making connections to TOS. There you go. Standard you, orbit. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You, Who did it? Me. That's right. I'll, I'll give you credit where credit's due. But um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. 
I mean, sometimes when I'm watching this episode, I'm kind of captivated by it because it's just so, so different and so disturbing. But yeah, but, yes. but I mean, I, I find that part in Star Trek Two really disturbing. But this part is is, I mean, it's more disturbing in a certain way, but in another way, it's it's almost like cartoonish violence because it just it just seems unreal, right? I mean, his head explodes, his chest opens up, and there's this huge creature inside that they then have to phaser after that. It's it's almost ridiculous. The way that it that it happens, but uh, yeah, and what makes it creepy is that because Remick is willing, like he opens his mouth, you well, know, because he's controlled by this mother creature. Apparently, yeah. there's this mother creature that that uh, controls the other creatures. And actually, in the DS9 book I mentioned before, Unity, they actually talk more about the mother creature and how they're, and they give all of this this information about it. But like in the episode itself, it feels really strange that somehow this mother creature has chosen him. I don't know why him and not you know the head of Starfleet Command or an admiral or something but right um, but yeah that part is ugh. it's yeah but definitely like if you've ever seen this episode that's a part you will never forget if you forget anything else that happens exactly well and that uh, reminds me of alien right yeah. I mean how does it not this thing coming out and opening its mouth and you know it's from the very chest area of that. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, so it's, uh, it, yeah, just that makes it really unique. I mean, the, the whole thing about the conspiracy at Starfleet Command and, you know, everything is just driven by this one plot and the way that it just kind of unfolds and everything that's kept secret. I mean, this is one of the, I think the first times on, on TNG that you see all of this kind of secrecy. There's a special channel where no records are kept and Picard is telling, um, you know, Riker and the bridge crew not to keep any record of their diversion. And there's a secret meeting on the planet and, you know, they're heading over to Starfleet command without giving them any, any notice. So there's all of this secrecy going on around it. And I, I love it when you, when you can see that. And it's something that's just so unusual to, to see in TNG, especially so early. Yeah. It makes me wonder though, like, okay, how many people are on board and no one's going to comment? No one's going to make a personal log. Oh, darn it. I really wanted to go to Pacifica and now we're not, we're being delayed, you know, but That's whatever. true. But I guess there's a question about those personal logs. Do they, do they just stay personal on, on the ship and it's never sent somewhere else or do certain officers get sent somewhere else? I don't know. I don't think they've ever explained where that that goes. I mean, certainly the captain's logs, I think at some point get transmitted to Starfleet command for them to, to look at, but if it's a personal log, I don't know, but I don't know. It's a question like the cloud <laughs> who's, who has access to the cloud. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's it, but it's a good question. I mean, the other thing is, you know, that these other ships have been compromised, but the enterprise has 1000 crew members and you get the, the, like they're talking about all of these things building for months and months and months. And, you know, why is, is nobody on the Enterprise compromised? But they do say that they're at the outer rim. They haven't had mm -hmm. much, much um, uh, contact with, with command. And actually, this is the first time in TNG that the Enterprise goes to Earth. So they, right. I guess, have been out exploring for all those months and they haven't been out of Earth, been back to Earth since they left space dock, you know, sometime before that. So um, I guess it makes sense because they're just way out there. Well, so Justin, what are your final thoughts? on this episode and if you would how would you rate it well i think as i said toward the beginning i love this episode i think it's one of the great ones from from season one i think there are lots of other great episodes uh from from season one but this is 
quite possibly my favorite. It's something that's it's it's very different. It's very dramatic. There's a mystery that's going on. Um, we get to see the Enterprise go back to Earth, which we haven't seen before. We see Starfleet Command. There's even some humor. There's some great music. I think it's an episode that really has it all. And um, yeah, for me, definitely one of my favorites in in season one. If and it's it's up there with some of my favorites for the rest of the series as well. Um, I give it a ten out of ten. I think it's a fantastic episode. Yeah, um, I don't know, ten out of ten <laughs> for me, <laughs> but definitely. I mean, we've have had a, I think, very rich discussion because of this episode. And so for that, I mean, it's obviously, you know, the writing is good, the acting is great. And, you know, it really does fit in with that Star Trek ideal, in my opinion. And so I... It's always one that you will remember because of the ending. But, you know, those subtleties um, that we've discussed, I think, really make the um, episode definitely a shining star for season one. So I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. Okay, maybe a bit less enthusiastic, but that's okay. Yeah. But I mean, I think what we found in this discussion is there's a lot to talk about. I mean, as I was taking notes and preparing for this episode, you know, there there's just a lot of a lot of like interesting details and interesting relationships and things that go on. We could probably talk about it for another hour if we wanted to because there's because there are these interesting things about the Enterprise D becoming a family and about friendship and about secrecy and about conspiracies and there's just a lot of richness to the episode and that's one of the things I really appreciate that they've kind of put so much into 45 minutes of TV. Well, yeah, and the backstories, you know, I mean, when you see Crusher come on the bridge, did you see Walker? You know, so that also, you know, gives that context between her and Picard's relationship as well as with Walker. So yeah, yeah, it definitely the richness and the context that this episode brings to the entire um, crew is, is really good. Yeah. And I mean, of course, building off of continuity from a previous episode, that's, you know, fantastic to see people sometimes criticize TNG as being, you know, so standalone, but there are, you know, a number of examples like this where they're building upon something you've seen before. They're bringing back, you know, uh, characters from a previous episode and those characters are changing and they're different. And I think it's a great example of continuity as well. You know, I, since you bring it up a little side note, I get a little irritated when people say that, because when I watch the next generation, I see all of the connections and I'm like, what are you saying? They talked about this before, or there's that relationship, you know, showing itself again later down the road. And just because the story isn't arced, like what we're used to seeing, like with DS9, I know that's the fan favorite for these, you know, major arcs or like Enterprise with their Zindi arc and stuff like that. But TNG, like the character development that builds, to me, that's the arc. And that's what Next Generation is about. And yeah, you have these stories that, yes, all the generally speaking, not this episode, but you know, all the loose ends get tied up and then we move on to next week and blah, blah, blah. But I really take umbrage to those who don't see that character arc through the seven seasons of Next Gen. 
I'm just going to say that. Yeah, it's a really good point because I think you're talking about a different kind of continuity, a character continuity and character changing growth. And I think actually in TNG, like the Picard you see in Encounter at Farpoint, I think is quite different than the Picard you see in All Good Things and the way that Data changes and Troy changes and the Forge change and, and, and all of that. I mean, you could go down the list for the different characters and the way they change. They're definitely not exactly the same as as in the pilot as they are seven years later. So I think it's a good point, you know, character continuity versus some story continuity, which is what people usually talk about. But there is right. story continuity in TNG as well. There's the arc with, you know, Worf and all of the dealings with the Klingon Empire that goes through more than one episode. It just kind of continues yes. and builds through different episodes. And they're, they're even, you know, Wesley Crusher, he gets an arc with different things that build upon other episodes. So... I think people do very much underrate that. You're right. Okay. Well, that aside, um, we hope uh, that you guys will go and uh, watch Conspiracy again with uh, some new, fresh look that we have provided here, hopefully. Um, So, talking conspiracy isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Melodic Treks. He wrote very heartfelt music for masculine subjects. And if you look at his career, whether it's Red October, where I don't think there's a woman with a speaking part, I mean, it's like an all-male movie. Uh, or Robocop or Conan or Flesh and Blood. And those were, you know, about like old fashioned, traditional manly men, you know, and what's what's in the heart of those warriors. Literary Treks. McCoy eventually gets command of the Enterprise. And one of the reasons for this is that he makes little comments to Kirk occasionally about how he has a cushy job. You know, he's got, oh, this nice, comfortable chair he can sit in. Because McCoy at this point, he's got a lot of people getting sick on the Enterprise. There's colds, there's broken legs or whatever. I mean, there's just, for some reason, sick bay is busy. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. The thing that finally pushed me over the edge. This is going to sound so stupid. I've said this before. They were releasing a uh, Superman versus Aliens comic book. And I was like, oh, I guess I better get ready for Superman versus Aliens <laughs> and watch, you know, the Alien movies. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcast on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's shows, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best places to join the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. We love 
interacting with our listeners there. So join the conversation. If you'd like to send us an email, we love those too. You can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. If you'd like to help keep all the shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It's requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all that details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Well, Justin, it has been an absolute pleasure having you uh, here on Earl Grey. We, um, through the summer months, it's going to be hit and miss with these hosts, and we just wanted to make sure that we had an episode coming to you listeners each and every week. And so thank you for your patience with just listening to me and Justin. Um, So Justin, if people want to reach out to you and talk to you more about conspiracy, where can they find you? Uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is trekfan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And I'm currently tweeting about my TNG rewatch, where I'm getting toward the end of season one. And you can also find me hanging around on the Babel Conference on Facebook. And I hope to see you there and uh, get your feedback about this episode and anything else Star Trek you want to talk about. Yes, you are very, when I go to my Twitter, I'm like, there's Justin, you know, just so involved. And I learn so much and you retweet really good posts. And so I really appreciate following you. Um, How many followers do you have now? I think you were talking about that couple. Oh, uh, it's about 600 now. Uh, Isn't that crazy? (laughs) It's very crazy because I just started on Twitter back in October and I thought, you know what? Yeah, I thought, you know what? I'm going to tweet about Star Trek because I love that. I'm, you know, watching episodes every day, reading novels every day, listening to Star Trek podcasts every day and all of that. So I did. And I just started tweeting about different things in my rewatches and things that I would find and, you know, following other people. And it's just kind of gradually grown day by day. It's it's blown my mind. I, I was surprised six people would be interested, let alone. 600 so it's quite something (laughs) wow that is very impressive so I started tweeting you know since getting more involved with the network and I'm pretty happy I've got like 80 I'm like hey that's still good that's good I mean but but I tweet uh, fairly constantly I mean it's dozens of things every day so sorry to you know have so many things of mine for you to look through but uh, no I love it I love it it's so good and um, you can find me me um, on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson. I'm not as 
constant as you, but I do tweet out a few things here and there. And, but my favorite place definitely is uh, the Babel Conference. So you can find me there as well. So again, thank you again for coming on, Justin. We really do appreciate you and uh, for you being our associate producer here on Earl Grey. Uh, Thank you. Very happy to be here. Very much enjoyed the discussion. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Great joy and gratitude.